Welcome, everyone, to episode five of Room of Requirement, our podcast dedicated to... Wait, wait, wait. I want to change this. Maybe now, maybe forever, maybe just for this episode, but instead of self-care, soul care. Soul care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. S-O-U-L care. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> care of the soul. Okay, so, so it is soul care and resistance <laughs> in the time of Trump. Because uh, I think you're right. Self care is a little bit. It's too fussy. Like I think I it's think, a little indulgent and yeah, like a yeah, little yeah. bit. I think there's more at stake now. I am one of your co-hosts, Kamalesh Rao. With me is Miracle Jones. All right. So I guess we start every podcast with how we are taking care of ourselves. Um, so Miracle Jones, you want to go? How am I taking care of my soul? Uh, you know, it's a it's it's been a really hard week. It's been really rough. I don't, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think it's just been. Uh, I think it's been unexpected, the barrage of just crap that's come. That affects me, so I've been really trying very hard to do a good job taking care of my, myself. I, you know, I've been running almost every day this week. How have you been eating? Uh, I ate wonderful on Wednesday. <laughs> a great meal. <laughs> it was really balanced. The conversation was good. Yeah. That was all thanks to you. Uh, thanks to my wife. I did nothing uh, other than wash dishes. <laughs> One of the things... Uh, I like to think about it's like uh, as we get into this podcast, like a little bit about like, your mental health. Like I think that's it's a hard, harder thing to gauge, right? Yeah, yeah, terrible. It's yeah. been rough. I'm yeah. just, I've been sleeping and having like terrible dreams. And you think this is all politically motivated? It's all not, politically like you know. It's not like it's politics having a direct one to one and correlation on my own mental state, but it's in the air. Like sometimes it's you know you ride the subway, you see people kind of demoralized and like. Checking each other out in weird or new ways, right? And I think that's interesting because we just start, we would have started on a high, right? Like the yeah. like this week. If you consider what happened last Saturday, which was the women's march, right? right. So I, I think that's it's a weird thing because I think a lot of people were certainly really uh, um, either energized or, or, or really inspired by the women's march, especially from our side. So uh, and since then, <laughs> it's, it says something that there's been enough activity to like take away some of that energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about yourself? Like? Uh, so I, and I think in general, I've been uh, my food intake has been all right. Uh, my exercise has been actually pretty good, um, and uh, so in general, I'm pretty good about handling all that. Uh, one of the things I like to think about, like we talked about it last time, was was stress. And yeah. one of the significant components of my life is something like job stress or, or things like that. And I think that's just a bad idea to work for a corporation if you have a problem with authority. I feel like it's it's interesting in terms of like uh, politics too, because I, I have this like deep like anti-authority kind of bent to me or anti-authoritarian bent, and so I have a problem a lot of times with government doing certain things uh, in the name of the people or whatever what on no matter on what side so like um, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, circular little um, piece of logic or like there's a little bit of a feedback loop here with with how I think about authority and I, I just I, I don't know I just deal with it poorly it adds to a lot of stress and I don't know how, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how to think about it but it certainly has a feed into like how I think about politics yeah I mean Almost everybody I know and like has an anti-authoritarian streak, and yeah. it's just I, I. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I just think I think it's hard if you want, like, how do you learn to work with power? And that's something yeah. that like I feel like I've never learned. It, you know, it's American about us. Was like we 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 don't pledge to a, a king or a, a parliament. We pledge to a country. We pledge to a system of rules. Yeah. You know? We pledge to the D and D manual. Yeah, and it's know? interesting too because I think the right sees themselves as. 
as doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Are you are do you, are you trying to get better at it? Or are you trying to be like more? I don't know. I don't. I I am I'm, I'm first trying not to lose my soul, and then like uh, I try also just to keep to like doing interesting work that yeah. makes me. Um, challenges me and also I think does some interesting stuff so yeah that's and I, I can do it but I think it's it's hard right so like I uh, I feel a lot of times like there are gatekeepers that are just there to like get in my way I think I think when there is like a authoritarian bent to the political leadership authoritarian occurrences in in one's daily life or in one's workplace become way more right. fraught. Yeah, absolutely. You experience them so much more directly. Yeah, I think it just gets heightened. Like, all of a sudden, I'm super sensitive. I'm like, what yeah, are you, yeah, a fucking Trump? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. not. And I'm just no. like, it's just a feedback loop there where, like, I, I feel, like, so pressed upon um, either at work, I, like, I project it on politics or vice versa, right? Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I just feel like, oh, we're, you know, we're on bunker mode. Like, I don't yeah. have time to deal with ex-manager whatever yeah Michael Scott's bullshit right I'm really that's one of the things that New York is is good for me about because you know as much as when you're sitting in your room like refreshing Reddit politics or or the internet or whatever you know you you see this vision of America that's like dark and horrible and like (laughs) you know makes no sense and does not compute but then I go out on the train and it's still fucking New York, you know? Yeah. Like, it's the same shit. It's the same people, you know? And it just makes me feel good. It's like, all right, I understand this. And I know how these people are. And right. Like, we're not we're not going fascist tomorrow. <laughs> you know? It's just, yeah. It's going to take a while. I mean, I had a question for you, actually. Sure. Just re- re- regarding, I guess, uh, high blood pressure and cholesterol. Yeah. Just said you something you you struggle with. Yeah. What does that mean as far as diet restrictions? Like, I want to help you. <laughs> if, I, if we're out eating, yeah, yeah. I want to know. I'm what, pretty what, good about it now. Yeah. So, like, um, I have a wife that loves to eat, um, and so uh, and is at the same time um, somewhat uh, blasé about my dietary restrictions. It doesn't really she doesn't care. believe you. <laughs> she kind of doesn't. <laughs> So she, or she doesn't care yeah. or because I just I, 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 just, I, ins- I signed her onto my insurance policy when we got married right. she has no incentive uh, for me to live long right like there's zero incentive for her well also you're, you're in your 40s right yeah I, and you, you can't see Carmelesh internet world but you look like you're about 28 you know you really do the gray you, you, there's a little bit of gray in your hair yeah, yeah. but it's just a frosting yeah you know? but mentally I'm like 89 right <laughs> yeah so I'm gonna be started about the youngsters yeah, on my lawn. Yeah, no, I hear that, but I mean, yeah, I can see as to where somebody, you talking about your cholesterol appears like a, like a nine-year-old <laughs> about their cholesterol. It's like, I think you're okay. <laughs> Part of growing old is like you, you also might get really sensitive to your health care, or, and, and, it, and I think it's important, right? Like, it, it is important to take care of yourselves, uh, just personally, and also like, just, you know, politically, we have to stay strong, I guess, in order to survive. And also, you know, just grow, like, the soul yeah, must absolutely. grow. You yeah, absolutely. We must perceive what has happened as an opportunity to yeah. become stronger and become more engaged. And yeah, we were handed a lesson. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's important that we kind of learn from that. Uh, uh, so that's a perfect segue into politics. Do you want to, I guess, uh, let's just talk a little bit about politics this week. And um, holy shit, what a week. Yeah, what a week. We can uh, talk for 10 hours and not cover it. That's the whole point. Oh, it yeah. seems like that was the plan on behalf of the Trump administration. Yeah, to dilute us. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I, I really struggle with is how do we think about priorities? And this is a, a large uh, conversation, right? So, like, 
in some ways, like, okay, what do you, what do we think are the most important political events? It's, a, it's, a, it's actually not an easy list to make, especially yeah. if you try to rank them in what you think is important, because fundamentally, like, uh, we have uh, people who are, are are playing a game, and, and this happens across politics in general. But the pri- do we want priorities to be set by Trump or not? And so, uh, one of the things that um, happens in this current cycle is that he'll say something outrageous and ludicrous, and we get really excited about it, and that. But that shouldn't rise to our priorities. What do we actually think that's coming from the Trump administration or what's happening in politics that are actually important? And there's just a lot of there's a lot of noise, and it's really hard to figure out okay what's really important and what's really focus uh, important to focus on. And I, I think it's an important question that everyone on our side has to think about because we're not going to win every battle. We're we don't have a lot of power in the federal government. Yeah. How do we marshal our resources and how do we draw a line of what's important and what's not? So like we need to get we need to get into the habit of not trying to figure out what Trump is saying so much as saying we this is what we have heard you know what I mean like that there is a line between what he's saying and what he's doing yeah um, and you can either see uh, either Twitter now that now that he's in power either his Twitter pronouncements become policy mm. which we'll t- I think we'll talk about in terms of uh, election fraud how or, a bill becomes a law right. first of all Trump tweets about it yeah, right exactly <laughs> and then Uh, Or the reverse, which is, you know, these executive pronouncements, which may or may not say anything, but it is effectively, like, an easy thing for him to do. I wonder if it's a legislative version of tweeting. Like, it's like, okay, I'm just doing an executive pronouncement. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, 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 but it's a lot of noise that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Like, I mean, I I think, you know, the direct... The directive on the ACA is an interesting example of this. But okay, so the bigger conversation is how do we how to? Uh, it's something we have to be aware of is priorities, not mm-hmm. in terms of what's important, but also like what do we marshal ourselves for? What are we what are we focusing on? Because there's just going to be a lot of stuff coming from the uh, uh, the Trump administration, and that's part of the strategy is to send you off to eleven, even though you've been screeching already, so that when it, uh, there is something actually really important, like. Uh, it, it sounds like you're still screeching, right? Like you've already lost your voice. So, um, I don't know. I, I thought, when I was trying to make this list today, I was, I was thinking about priorities a lot. Yeah, for me, it's it's what is permanent and what can be reversed. Yeah. Uh, which is why, to me, the wall is the thing that I always think about because yeah. that's a permanent like scar and it would be something that... I mean, you can tear it down, mm-hmm. but... It's something that could be up there for the rest of our lives if we do this wrong. If we if we if we don't fight correctly about this, or it becomes like a wedge issue, right? Then we have a permanent wall on our southern border. Oh, that's interesting. All right, so you want to start with the wall because I, I actually think that uh, we might disagree. But oh, no, no, uh, let's talk about the wall because yeah. we could talk about it. But I actually, I uh, so the more I think about the wall, I actually think that this is like if he wants to build a wall, like. Let him fight with his own party about the wall because it's asinine and ineffective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, mean, to- I do think there's some truth to that. Yeah, yeah. It will be, you know, it, it's going to be, he's going to get hung up on it. It's going to be a thing he thinks about all the time. He's yeah. going to be down there a lot, you know. Yeah. Just like, it's a huge, stupid idea for him, for us, for everybody. That he's fixated it on. Yeah, that yeah. he's fixated on. And uh, it's a bad idea. And even if you think about border security, it's, it's the most ineffective way to ensure border security. Yeah. And if you're worried about immigrants, illegal immigrants, that's not the way you prevent illegal immigrants. You actually crack down on visa overstays, right? So, oh, sure. Right? So or you elect a president that is so hateful no one would ever want to come here. So right. the job's done. Right. Yeah, we just have to let we it run it. out. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good job, America. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
right, so, uh, so yeah, I don't have that much to say about the wall. So you want to talk a little bit more about the wall. You think it's going to be... If we if we build it, it's going to be well. On one hand, like strategically, him building it is really bad for him. So great, like if that's what you want to do, then you know you're fucked for history. For you know, I, but on the other hand, it's horrible. Like to it's going to be really embarrassing and terrible for America, and it's going to make the four years that it's getting put up like hard. It's going to be hard to watch. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be it's going to create you know nightmare after nightmare diplomatically. Uh, it's gonna give it's gonna give cover to countries that we ordinarily think of as serial human rights abusers to come after us, uh, and they're gonna be right to do so. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder about. I mean, I think putting up borders. I don't know if it'll in, allow for questions about our, our our human rights as such. I mean, I think other policies in terms of immigration or refugees will open up that conversation. But the wall, in and of itself, isn't a human rights abuse. Actually, not yet, not yet. But here's the thing: like, I mean, those areas, the the cities on the on the border there, we're destroying the entire town. We're cutting towns in two. Uh, these a lot of these border towns have a, a American side and a Mexican side, you know. Uh, and we are going to Berlin Wall these towns, and it's going to be public and visible, and uh, it's 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 going to be a human rights situation because people have relatives. You know, you're taking uh, an ethnographic region and you're putting up a, a forty foot tall barrier across it. And yeah. How do people get it? You know, you're, how do you see your cousins? How do you go to weddings? You know, you, maybe which which side's your church on? You know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think there's there is something about in general just having borders uh, that seems both ugly in terms of aesthetically just looking at it, but also ugly in terms of what it means uh, for the American spirit. Because part of the American ethos is that we are a land of opportunity, um, and it it is a really an important way of thinking about the world. I just I actually wonder how this is going to play out with immigration, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it is obviously like a way to pull out immigration. So, one way of thinking about it uh, is depending on how much power you have. Um, and I, it, right now, it's it's a hard argument to make for the Democrats is that if you let them build a wall, then you'd be like, okay, well, uh, what do we what do we get in response? So, like, you've built your wall, you've had border security, and one of the the back and forth about trying to find middle ground for immigration was the Republicans were like, we want border security, and then we can talk about um, amnesty, or something that, amnesty, but the middle ground between the Republican, the back and forth between the Republicans yeah. during the Bush era, and also the Obama era was like, first border, so there's border security and there's amnesty. For, yeah. What? On the order of 10 million illegals already living in the country. So you can't deport 10 million. You're just ineffective, and it's a bad policy. So how do you get around that? Uh, and so they're like, okay, well, first border security, and they keep throwing up a lot of like, okay, well, the border's still not secure, the border's still not secure. But with a wall, it's hard to argue you're going to get any more secure. So at that point, does it become, well, now we have to talk about amnesty? Oh, or, interesting. So you said to get rid of this wedge issue, they're doing this huge symbolic gesture. No, no, do, do Democrats allow that to happen? So yeah. we, we allow the wall, but you have to, then we have to have an honest conversation about amnesty. The problem, I think, in the Trump administration is amnesty's not on the table yeah. and that's and if he's talking about three million illegal voters uh, he's already uh, he's poisoned the public rhetoric so much that even walking him back to hey let's bury the a mm -hmm. amnesty issue for a while um, rather than bringing people rather than bringing it up I mean right now he's just swung so much right that we would be happy just not to talk about it yeah and that's and that's what I really worry about so I mean the wall is it 
I think it's ugly and it's a bad idea. And if, even if I were a Republican, I would be like, this is a dumb idea, especially especially just in terms of taxes. like Waste money. Also, which side is the river? Which side of the river is it going to be on? Yeah, it's going to be in the middle. <laughs> it's going to be in the middle of the river. Reach it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, I keep thinking about that. Like, what if you're a deer? <laughs> you know? you got to choose. you got to choose. you got to choose. Yeah, I, to me, I worry about the implications of where the immigration debate is, which I think is, is fundamental, but I think it, it's... Uh, it's just gotten really ugly and nasty, and I, uh, that's uh, to me like this. That's the most concerning thing that I think has happened. Like executive uh, executive orders to sign uh, to build a wall. I don't really care about. I, I, I think it's bad in general, but like it's not a priority. But I think what it is is it's a uh, it's a precursor to a very ugly and nasty debate about immigration, about. Uh, 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 sort of uh, already about um, sort of demonizing illegal immigrants um, and also just walking back all sorts of immigration policies, uh, including legal immigration. So uh, they've already uh, started to talk a little bit about it. And I think that it's interesting if you read the a lot of the um, actual texts of the of the executive orders themselves. Uh, you're starting with policies that are are more or less considered and I mean to the right, but not crazy. So. I wonder what's going to happen when you enact all of this. Do we just go further and further right, or is it, or is this is the closest they come to middle ground? Um, so I don't know. Some, something I've been thinking about for many years, but that maybe this is time for this discussion to happen is is on an ID card, a national ID card, taking off the race section and replacing it with uh, family country. Or like, assuming everybody in America is an immigrant, just yeah. saying like, what country is your family from? <laughs> so on Trump's ID card, it would say you know German, Sur- Swedish, Swedish, whatever. He gets to pick. Oh no, no, he's he's German. Yeah, German. He's actually German, and uh, then he pretended to be Swedish. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And in which case, that would make everybody realize, you know, we're all. It's just default. Like you're an, you're in America. You are an immigrant. Right. Like you may have been here for a. It might say England on there. Yeah. You know that if you want to, but it's it should say something and. Instead of you know thinking of ourselves in these broad racial categories, thinking of ourselves in terms of where do we immigrate from and what does that mean? There's obviously this war going on with sanctuary cities and how the federal government's going to implement uh, their policies. And, and we've talked a little bit about the war between the land and the cities, yeah. right? Um, and it's going to be hard, right? Like I think this is a great way for them to put up excuses to deny federal funds, right? And there's a simple through line. Uh, there is a law on the books already. We didn't even make it up. We are just enforcing it. Who are you to resist us? You're just you're a mayor. This is the federal law, and it's very hard to come back from that rhetorically. And so you have a very complicated explanation of why you're resisting the president. So it plays pretty well, I think, uh, in terms of simple messaging. The idea that you have sanctuary cities. Yeah, I think I think you talk about it the same way they talk about tax loopholes. Yeah, you just be like you know, it's a, maybe it's a law, but it's in my interest to subvert it any way I can. Right, way, I mean the same way a corporation would try to pay the lowest amount of taxes. Right, uh, and also Mexico has an easy play, which is we will not accept them. Yeah, so now you're making camps. Yeah, and that's a horrible that that's your another human rights nightmare. Yeah, America's absolutely. putting people in in camps to ship them over, and Mexico is not taking them. We've created like a weird countryless class of people. Right. right, so the scariest thing that I've actually read this week, and it's a little bit in the fine line, is that Trump or someone in his uh, someone in, in the administration is talking about 
listing weekly the crimes committed by illegals. Oh, yeah. 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 So that is just demonizing illegals straight out. And there's, I mean, and it's a. It's all going to be Russians picked up for public intoxication. <laughs> What's the point of this, though? What do you get? Yeah, I, I think it's really obvious. You want yeah. to demonize, if you have a, a monthly fee or a weekly fee and you demonize illegal immigrants and you're like, hey, we're just taking care of criminals. So mm-hmm. now you are saying that every illegal immigrant is a criminal, which is technically true, but also a dangerous criminal that we have to think about. So now, like I said, we're no longer talking about amnesty. We're talking about, we're, as a Democrat, you just hope about not talking about anything, right? Like, you're just hoping for silence rather than than uh, what is kind of implied, which is we have to get rid of all of these 11 million illegal criminals. I just, it pisses me off so much. Like, an illegal immigrant to America, that's the most American goddamn thing. Immigration to a country without a phenotype to it that has a constitution built around the freedom, that's, like, beautiful. We should be celebrating. I don't know. It's fucked up to me. I don't know. I 100% agree. I mean, I think with our current... The way the government implements things like Social Security, it's really... There are the only incentive that you have to come to America is you want to try to make it here. Like yeah, you want yeah, to yeah. work hard and you have a better and you have a provide a better life for you. You're, you're a bit family. of a you're an ambitious jerk, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, yeah. I want to go to the hard place and like work, you know, sixty hours a week. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's my parents, fuck. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that's I would, if I were gonna live it, if I had to pick, it'd probably be Norway. You know, like yeah, if I could like put a dot. I'm a lazy. Yeah, guy. you're a lazy <laughs> socialist. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about Steve Bannon if you want, but. The idea is that like they're going to try to come up, uh, they're they're going to try to come up with a majority part party, and that's what he really thinks he can do. But the the idea that the Republicans do this while alienating a significant amount of people, and at the same time targeting people who kind of represent what you really hope is a conservative ethos, yeah, like, the most conservative, conservative ethos. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. I stand on my own two feet. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm going. There's not that that much social security. Um, and I'm going to work really hard and try to make it. That is, those are the type of people you actually want to replace lazy Americans with. <laughs> That's how we've like stayed on top for so many years. Yeah, like, you want strivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, early signals of the immigration policy are really ugly, and it's. I think this is one of my first fears going in, and I just think it's everything has been confirmed. I wonder to what extent we'll be able to fight this culturally. It feels like a direct assault on our neighborhood, for instance. Y- yeah, like, oh my yeah, god, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackboot Thug's going to come to Jackson Heights. Yeah. How do you say, like, and it has to be something about, hey, we are standing up for people who are here in this country to work hard. They're here, they are pursuing the American dream. If that's all they've done, then I'm okay with backing them. Like, that's... An, a, a, I'm not a politician, but there has to be a line like that. Um, and I think it's a shame that the Democrats haven't come across that kind of simple messaging. And they're afraid to try. That's the thing. It's like they don't trust us. It's like they don't believe that's what we want to hear. I think pa- I think those kind of patriotic pitches are, are, are a little hard. That vocabulary doesn't come easily. Is like, that what it is? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of a it's a lot of victimhood. It's a lot of a grievance politics. That's that, too bad. That vocabulary. That's too bad. Yeah, I think it's there has to be something a little bit more aggressive. Uh, beyond the executive orders, which I'm more and more convinced that it's the Twitter of legislative uh, legislation. That's such a brilliant way of looking at yeah. it. Yeah. It seems like powerful action is just like the cheapest, easiest, like laziest way to do things. Yeah. I, 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 well, I mean, to be fair, I think uh, uh, the 
the presidency uh, as executive decree is something that Obama certainly abused, much to the ire of Republicans. So that's true. But even with executive orders, he signaled them, and there were months of preparation as yeah. far as like the best way to do it in order yeah. to make it effective. And he gave room for debate. It wasn't just you know sure. mandated. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, we'll see. I mean, certainly at this, the rate he's going, he will overtake the Obama administration. And additionally, in the first month. additionally, legislation always came first. He always tried to do a legislative. Yeah. First, yeah, when the, that failed and the situation right. became dire, then he would say, "I have no choice but to right. reluctantly issue an executive order in order to protect something from being right. taken was, away." So, I, I, yeah, so there was an obstructionist Congress that for that, uh, and and we always, uh, for some reason, the Republican uh, party line is that uh, they always seem to men- forget to mention that there's. A, Deeply obstructionist Congress that didn't allow the president to pursue policy. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that was on the president's fault uh, was mostly. I think it was mostly Congress, but also, I mean, I think Obama certainly was not the person to deal with that Congress at that time. Um, but yeah, then he resorted to uh, presidential decrees or executive decrees, and now this which is let the democratic process happen. People, even when in obstructing, the senators and representatives got to debate it, discuss yeah. what was happening. But now it, it's odd that now it, Trump has the House and the Senate. Yeah, and instead of trying that, yeah, yeah, he's still doing executive because decrees. It's getting people to think about executive orders as if it is a, as if it has the same place as legislation uh, and speaking of policy by the pen <laughs> uh, Twitter I guess uh, learning how to deal with the Twitter presidency is I think hard for certain people um, but a, a, but one tactic I think a lot of people proposed was okay just ignore him ignore his tweets but the truth is that the tweets become policy now mm-hmm. and the uh, the horrible example of this now is that he's alleging voter fraud. Yeah, yeah. And so voter fraud on the order of millions, um, absolutely asinine, uh, or, or completely lacking in evidence. I don't know how this is anything other than uh, a way for the Republicans to take cover and start to pull back voting rights, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. I think this is why there hasn't been more objections on the on the more respectable side of the Republican Party because there is a narrative there that says, okay, well, uh, there is voter fraud. There is a lot of voter fraud, um, and they'll point to very like this is very bad analysis, uh, and so they'll point to very specific examples of maybe there was voter fraud in this one county in this one election, mm-hmm. but. Whether or not that is an indictment of the system is really hard to say. And what is clear is that even if you have voter fraud in certain cases, certainly the kind of things that the Republicans have put in place uh, to pull back from voter rights, the ratio of denying people the access, the legal access to vote versus like clamping down on like the people who illegally vote, that ratio is, is ludicrous. It's certainly like... Um, so you are certainly, in the name of denying a uh, handful of illegal votes, you are denying legal access to people who have the right to vote on 10 to 100 to 1,000 times the number of people. And that's that should really worry you in terms of the, the just the basic policy of voters' rights and, you know, yeah, the franchise. Sorry. It's such an absolutely terrible and unsubstantiated claim, and the truth is, I think the Republican Party, especially people like Paul Ryan, are saying like, oh, well, we should look into it. Oh, yeah, it's great for them. I mean, yeah. they can, they can, it gives them cover to not change the actual injustices that occur in America. But, and, 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 spend and, money. And, and start to do what North Carolina did, which yeah. was put forth voter ID laws that really helped the Republican Party. Yeah. And 
you know, there's a, uh, there's a, there is a story here, and the story is that you have a minority party trying to hold on to the majority of power, and that, and that involves some very basic stuff, right? Making sure that we uh, don't pull in, we don't bring in any more minorities, yeah. and we don't, and we make sure, and we curtail voting rights of yeah. our opponents, right? So, like, this is these are acts. Uh, I would love to say that they're desperate, but they're only desperate if they're ineffective, and yeah. they're very effective now. I do think a lot of what we're seeing is is cultural revenge. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea that what emerged out of the out of the out of the wake of the the loss of the election was that we somehow that the Democrats lost because we didn't focus enough on economic issues. And you saw like the left try to be like, okay, well, we should have voted for, for Bernie. Bernie was had had a message that was uh, working class, and we, we ignored the plight of people. Um, and I think that's just not true. I think what lost the Democrats the election was the fact that people just felt uh, that they did not relate to Democrats in a, in a sort of a cultural way. It wasn't that they were worried about their economic messaging. Um, I think it was it was that the Democrats had come on, come to take on this uh, aura or this stereotype of being elitist and concerned about certain things that just didn't resonate with the heartland. So this was the Democrats were handed a cultural loss, not an not a loss on economic issues. So there is something about a rejection of what people perceive as being the culture or the trends in the culture as embodied by the Democratic Party. And insofar as the Democratic Party wants to continue to exist and maybe eventually take over the majority of power at some point, they have to recognize that the Democratic Party is a party, a wide tent party, and you yeah. have to appeal to a lot of people. Uh, it's a hard balancing act. A wide tent party is a hard balancing act. It's much easier to talk about values that you can, uh, for a smaller party or a more culturally homogenous party. In, in order to stay sane and to like keep from just getting kicked in the teeth by shitheads, Democrats have, have 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 turtled up a little bit. Yeah. They just refuse to engage. Yeah. You know, and they, they haven't relied upon one of their strongest core strengths, which is soulfulness, which is that ability to reach out and like try to get to know people and and to to connect and to share stories and to that aren't just, you know, uh, this American life stories. But <laughs> yeah. you know There's a little bit of a complacency there, yeah. but I just I wanna just make sure that when we start to talk about things, I mean, there's something about what the culture represents, uh, hypersensitivity or the culture, other social culture warriors or Black Lives Matter, or let's just face it, the fact that minorities represent a far larger proportion of uh, of society and in and, and the next 20 years uh America is going to become a, it's, on, it's no longer going to have there will be a plurality of white people but there will no longer be a majority of white people and I think that's and that depending is part, upon how white is defined but yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Yeah. but I think, I think that's and, and seeing that I think that is threatening and I think that's, that's why a cultural message or an implicit cultural message is so strong in the Republican Party yeah I mean another, another way of looking at it might be that we did not reckon with German American identity politics <laughs> uh, enough. We were afraid to, you know, look at Gingrich and Priebus and Trump, and you know, there's there's a commonality there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess before we leave politics in general, uh, I just want to talk about the Women's March. So, yeah. um, so it's a, I think it's an important march for the Democrats. I think it's it's certainly something that like uh, important march for everybody for yeah. history. It's yeah, very and cathartic. It, yeah, and I think, it, but I, I don't know what it'll translate to in terms of actual 
policy or, or next steps or tactics or coalition building. Um, what is interesting, I think, is to see how the Republicans have handled it. It really hurt them. I think it really, I think it was a real wound. And yeah. I think they responded to it the way that they do all things that wound them, which is like nitpicking of things that fit into their narrative. Yeah, ignoring the larger story. Yeah, I think I, to me, like I think the flurry of activity this week is a response yeah. to the women's march because they wanted to bury that. Yeah, they didn't yeah, want yeah. that lingering sense. Yeah. They were like, okay, remember we're in charge. Yeah. So like, you had your happy moment. Now we crush it. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking the whole time that's just our white women. Yeah, like, <laughs> when it's nice outside, get ready for two million people in the yard. Right, right. Um, so I, I wonder how. So marches are one thing, but I wonder how it's going to translate into like on-the-ground tactics how and, and what that really means. But I, I think marches can be really powerful, especially if people identify with them. I yeah, I was talking... Turning Washington, D.C. into, like, permanent Coachella, I think it's <laughs> not a bad idea, you know? Uh, once again, we, we doubled down on losing, <laughs> losing the cultural victory. <laughs> we are people without homes. Uh, but I think I, I mentioned this, like, it's surprising because I got a bunch of texts from uh, people I went to college with. There was a group of people I went to college with I was pretty close to, and uh, I don't think of them, any of them is particularly political, but they were all at various marches in the, in the cities and they were sh- sharing photographs. So I think it was a really big moment. All of my ex-girlfriends were there and I was just hoping they didn't run into each other. <laughs> so it was uh, ominous. Oh, that note. Doubling down on defeat. Somehow it's so appropriate. So uh, our section where we talk about uh, what the left is doing to ensure that it stays out of power. <laughs> I wanted to return to the idea of priorities. Like how... Do we react to a presidency that is, in part, using a strategy of outlandish things and baiting in order to continue to like exhaust us, right? So how do we? What do we choose? What to react to? Uh, if we're always at eleven, like if how do we make sure we, we marshal our resources and 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 prioritize in a way that makes us effective? Because we do have fewer resources now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have a great solution, but you know. If you're permanently dialed up to 11, how do you actually, now that things are really shitty, how do you turn up the dial, right? Yeah, I mean, here's something that I've gleaned from just reading Churchill's memoirs. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Fascists can't lose. You can always lose. (laughs) Anytime you fight, you can lose and it's fine, but fascists can't. They have to win when they engage. Yeah. So they have to... uh, So if you can provoke them into... And even if they lose, they have to say they won. Yeah. You know, losing once really, really hurts their momentum. So even if they have more power and strength than you do, they always have to overcommit. Yeah. They always have to use more resources in order to win than you do. So I think the strategy is picking <laughs> picking lots and lots of battles and making them have to win each one, starting little fires everywhere. Uh, interesting. I, I, as opposed to a grand strategy of prioritizing one thing and focusing right. it on that. Okay. Because they have more power, they have every branch of government. And, well, right. I mean, they said this yeah. a little bit about the Obama administration, but like, this is a president that comes in with a lot of promises that are going to be hard to fulfill. And um, not to make this economics corner, but uh, the GDP numbers are already slower in fourth quarter. So, like, oh shit. So I actually <laughs> predicted this correctly. Um, but yeah, we knew. So the economy is slowing, and, yeah. and significant, and for the reasons that actually have to do with the Trump presidency to some degree, right? So mm-hmm. the dollar is stronger, which hurts 
exports. So this is a big promise, right? Um, yeah. So uh, the economy is slowing, and this was kind of obvious that this was going to happen, that we were sort of reaching an inflection point. Again, it's an administration that has promised a lot. The economy in the fourth quarter is already slowing, and I, and I would guess that it's, gonna, it's not going to be that great in 2017. So. I do have one uh, question for you, just a thought sure. experiment. How useful do you think it would be for the Democrats to do a government shutdown the same way the Republicans did? Would it hurt them in the same way that it hurt the Republicans since the Democrats are completely out of power? Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess uh, so. it raises the question, like, how would the, how would the Democrats do it, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I think it's a hard thing to maneuver, right? right. So, like, budget. I mean, to be a budget bill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess what would be the point? Because I mean, part of the part of the ethos to keep from funding a wall uh, on the southern border. Oh, funding a wall. Huh? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think that, that it's more in keeping with the Republican ethos to shut down. Like, if there's already a hiring and pay freeze, and the budget expenditures are, are going to something that will cripple America in the eyes of the Democrats, is it you know? Because the ACA was funded in a different way, it was more built in. But this is a direct redistribution of you know federal money to the wall from other programs. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things about trying to do resistance, right, in mm-hmm. the era, in the era of Trump, is that no matter what you do, if you're willing to expand the rules of war, uh, at some point you're going to be a majority party, right? Mm-hmm. And those and those same kind of tactics will be used against. But it's already been used against us. Sure, sure. I just, uh, I mean, I, I think funding, I think funding or defunding the government or trying to shut down the government is inherently destructive for mm-hmm. any party. And if, if a minority party manages to do it, it will also flex the rules of, like you're allowing the Republicans the next time they lose power to effectively hold you hostage, and and they will be willing to do that as well. Um, so uh, the budget process, I think, I mean, this is one of those things where I, I think it's also just my nature to be like, okay, uh, like you want the government to run effectively, yeah. like you have to figure out this is not a battle to pick. Like you want to be, you want to present yourself as the actually the actual responsible party. But wouldn't that be so? For instance, during the Republican shutdown of yeah. government, Moody's lowered our credit rating. Yeah, the world shit on us collectively because they were doing it in order to keep us from funding you know semi keeping more getting more people insured which people around the world thought was a sensible thing to do yeah right right in this case it would be the opposite we would have the world on our side and and and, and that matters what I mean, so to be honest, I mean, what do we care about? We're saying resp- the responsible party. It would matter insofar as I think that's a, I think that's a narrative that just doesn't play. Like I mean, we have to be. I, I don't. I, the responsible party is the party that puts America first. And I mean, it just in America, like we profoundly don't care about what other countries think about us. So I mean, I, and that's and we we are horrible internationalists and we care about foreign policy and we care about things but I just don't think that's a story that plays well I think we're just not used to being the pariahs of the world I think it's a destructive policy but I think in, all, in general I, I never want us to be the policy that tries to blow up the government fair enough I'm, I'm just the saying party that should, be on the, should be on the table <laughs> all right. All right. variety of strategies <laughs> variety of strategies um 
So uh, let's talk a little bit about outside the bubble. Yeah, sure. Uh, what we're uh, what we're reading, what we're what we're trying to buy that is that comes outside of our liberal elitist bubble. Yeah. Um, so I uh, my recommendation this week, um, and it's not quite. I don't think the book itself is outside the bubble, but I think it is something worth reading. So uh, the recommendation is uh, American Lion, which is the biography of Andrew Jackson uh, by John Meacham. Uh, it is a really interesting read. Uh, I I don't know if I love the book. Um, have you read any other of his books, or no? I haven't. Okay. So I, I'm not super familiar with John Meacham, but uh, I I found so the book itself, the biography, is much more about his presidency. It's not really about his life. It sort of balances the the family politics and the politics of sort of the court of Andrew Jackson along with whatever's happening in government in general. So in some ways like the fallout between his niece and the um, Secretary of War's wife takes far more pages and, and ink than say the Indian policy. Sure. And so it feels a little like gossipy and superficial, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it is a really interesting portrayal of a man. Um, uh, and why I think it's outside the bubble is when Trump was elected and also after his inauguration address, there are deliberate references to Andrew Jackson uh, coming from people like Steve Bannon and even down the line, like I think Rudy Giuliani makes an allusion to Andrew Jackson and I don't, I mean maybe he's a great American fan of American history I don't know that much about him but it seems a little odd um, so I think that a lot of the messaging from the Republican Party is about Andrew Jackson and I guarantee you that... From the Trumpocrats I think they're interested in having their own party called the Law and Order Party. Yeah, absolutely yeah. so uh, if they're getting the messaging and, and Andrew Jackson started to reach currency if they are reading any book it's this book. Yeah. Um, so, How uh, he did it. Yeah. And it's interesting. So, But Jackson himself is a really fascinating character, but you can see why the Republicans really want it uh, to, to sort of draw the through line to from Trump to Jackson. And so Jackson is like a thin-skinned, really American uh, uh, populist. And he... And it's interesting because it's also uh, an illusion that will piss off, I think, people who come from the Democratic side, or pretty much anyone who thinks that maybe the Native Americans shouldn't have been moved off their land. Uh, sure. <laughs> or, or that we should have shut down our bank banking system, right? So, like, I mean, the, the big victories on, on the Jackson side are... are with the hindsight of history, looked pretty bad. Um, but he was a staunch unionist, mm -hmm. right? In a time when that wasn't really clear that someone from Tennessee would be, right? And so he he really did hold together the union for another ten or fifteen years. As a Houstonian, I've always been suspicious of Andrew Jackson. Uh, you should be, yeah. but uh, yeah. but he's but he and his. Uh, uh, I think it's his, one of his nephews actually leads the charge to try to incorporate uh, uh, Texas. Yeah. It, was, it was after after he gained parts of the South and Florida for the U.S. His next goal was Texas, and there is a very kind of like uh, white nationalist expansionism in Jackson. So you see this person who's very like stridently like yeah. uh, like nationalist um, in a lot of ways that have ethnic overtones. There are it's not subtle at all. Yeah. Um, but he was awesome. So, and here's something that Trump is not. He was a badass. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. He was an action <laughs> yeah. hero. So, yeah. the, the so he gains popularity as being like a war hero in the War of 1812. But even during the Revolutionary War, he fights. Uh, he fights the English, and he hates the English for uh, all of his life. Uh, 
as a 14 year old and so like and his family all dies in the revolutionary war and so he's like this scrappy scrappy like basically an action hero yeah. so like yeah. to the point where someone tries to assassinate him while he's the president and he has already like eschewed any sort of presidential guard he chases them down when they're <laughs> like as a 67 year old man with a cane yeah. he like chases them out, out after him with a cane um, and uh, and whatever uh, so it, it's an interesting kind of our Putin maybe, maybe that's <laughs> A little bit. Um, so there's something about his character. I, I never. I mean, he, I think his policies. Uh, there's no way to back that his policies, but he does transform the tone of politics, where he thinks of himself as a president who represents the people, even though he's still filtered through the electoral college. Yeah. That truly speaks for the people, and that's his argument for taking back power from the Congress. Sure. Yeah. Um, what I got from reading the biography or listening to it, because I listened to audio, but a lot of it is like he Jackson, because he believed in, uh, he embodied uh, uh, the American people and its truth. He really. He communicated simply, whereas like a lot of his opponents were trying to like talk about like very like elevated ideas of uh, political control and the constitutionality of something. And he was very simple. He was very straightforward, but he really believed in himself. And to me, like okay, that's a that's a, that's an interesting character. Yeah. But it in no way reminds me of. Donald Trump, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I understand the yeah, simple language, yeah, and, and his use of media. It's actually pretty analogous to to, to um, Andrew Jackson because the newspapers were there. Were, there was sort of a, a blossoming of the newspaper industry, and the news. And Jackson read like eleven to twelve papers a day, yeah. um, and so like so there is something about that. But his ability to communicate, and, and that's the reason there's actually he starts his own party, and I right. think that's why that's why I, I think people behind Trump want uh, think about him in that same way, but. Trump is is very much in the Republican mold right, at this yeah. point. But, you know, all these Trumpocrats, in general, if I were to define them, I would say insecure mediocrities. We are winning the cultural war. Good job. I don't mean, they, I don't mean, I don't mean they're voters. I mean the people, the Newt Gingrich, Rent Priebus, uh, you know, uh, Giuliani... Yeah, they're not my eighteen. I, 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 but I, I would say that uh, uh, Conway was solid. Conway's Conway's amazing. amazing. I would I would compare him to Buchanan if I had to pick a president that he's like. Yeah, I someone mean, who's polarizing America in a way that is dangerous, and if you look forward, you can see where this is leading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are better analogies, but the idea is that. Unlike Jackson, he doesn't have the kind of popular mandate that Jackson did or thought he did. Yeah. And, and this is why the numbers really bother him, right? Like, yeah. oh, I lost because of three million voters, right. or like the march, my march, or my inauguration was huge. Because he doesn't have that uh, popular mandate that that Jackson did, um, and and that is something that's a huge chink in Trump's own sense of himself, right? Like, if you don't have the popular mandate, you don't get to ride roughshod over your opponents, right? right? Right. You have to compromise, and that's not what Trump wants to do. So he has to start back somehow walk back his way into saying that I have a popular. It's mandate. not like that you can't try. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just that it's not going to work out for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are just going to be pissed off, and because they're 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 only reluctantly they're seeing what you do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be held to real metrics like yeah. how how many jobs you deliver yeah, and things yeah, like yeah. that. And so this is that's not what he wants to do. Yeah. Um, the other, and I'll just leave this because I think it's an interesting enough book. But uh, Jackson comes up in an age where um, the franchise has expanded, which is again different than uh, what maybe what we're going through and what we will go through. Um, but the idea is that there's a much more popular repre- uh, um, po- participation in, in national politics, um, and with that uh, was the power of newspapermen. 
would magnify. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so he has a couple of very key kind of um, uh, key kind of counselors or people he worked with. Right. And uh, Amos Kendall is someone who's really interesting. And he's really uh, between Amos Kendall and there's another person, but like basically that it becomes a Steve Bannon of his administration. So Amos Kendall started a newspaper. He comes to work as an advisor. Um, and there's some really interesting quotes about Kendall as being this like energetic goblin-like person <laughs> who's like. <laughs> who's doing a lot behind the scenes and right, I think right, that's right. why Bannon likes Jackson as oh, well because, can, because it's what you said about um, Cromwell yeah Cromwell like during Henry VIII right like that there's there has to be this advisor pulling the strings for yeah. Bannon to start making analogies so yeah to the point where I think Jackson actually starts his own presidential newspaper effectively the Globe he hires a newspaper editor to come in and start a paper that is basically political propaganda uh, for the president, mm-hmm. um, so it's an interesting thing about how media sort of the the change in the media landscape under Jackson, uh, not entirely analogous, but also there were some there are some echoes of our modern age. And Definitely worth reading to see what they're reading and to see yeah. like how they're self conceptualizing because yeah. that's so important because they, you know everybody everybody lives on myths. Nobody thinks of themselves as Hitler. Right. Hitler right. didn't think of himself as Hitler. He yeah. thought of himself as the Kaiser man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I guess my contribution to Outside the Bubble is uh, a magazine that I guess I've always been familiar with, but has shocked me with its full-throated condemnation of a lot of the policies of the Trump administration. I guess it shouldn't have. But uh, the America magazine, uh, which is the magazine put out by the Jesuit Society of America uh, and has been in circulation for 100 years, is now online, which is recent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, a lot of their articles recently have been, you know, open letters to Trump about the immigration crisis. And there is an article about how we should listen more to anarchists because, you know, Christianity is anarchist, not totalitarian. And supporting the black bloc anarchist riots. It's interesting you bring that up because I was just having dinner uh, last night with someone. Uh, He went on retreat with a couple of people from American Magazine, so they work for America. Yeah. And so maybe, at least I have a a connection. A connection. Maybe maybe we can bring them on the podcast. I'd love to have, as a a Catholic, I'd love to have some Jesuits up in this room of requirement. Yeah. Pope Francis is, you know, a uh, Italian Jesuit I'm sure he's watching what's happening right now and and he's got ideas and he's waiting I feel like he's waiting for the most propitious and effective time to weigh in yeah and you know Bannon is Catholic Conway is Catholic yeah. O'Reilly Hannity yeah uh, a lot of the people that Paul tr- Ryan Paul Ryan a lot of people that Trump trusts or has to work with has to work with and then you've got some of the swing senators Giuliani uh, Giuliani uh, Murkowski yeah uh, Mexico is certainly way more Catholic than America yeah so was there a particular article you thought uh, stood out to you I like that open letter it's just a it's a very mannered uh, uh, passive aggressive letter and fine like classic Jesuit style like <laughs> dear Mr. Trump I'm sure you will be you know defending the rights of refugees <laughs> and will be swayed by their their plight um, it's you know it's, it's it's Catholic so it's nine articles about the refugee crisis and identity politics and then one article that's like staunchly pro-life yeah for sure which, I mean you're, yeah. yeah yeah but it's 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 at least reasoned. It's well reasoned, and yeah. it's it's uh, consistent. 
and the quality of writing is high. All right, all right. great. And it's American? It's just called America. It's the most alt-right magazine title you've ever heard, and they squatted on it a hundred years ago. So <laughs> I'm sure everybody on it's the alt-right... Like yeah, it was like, that's the first thing they thought of, like, babe, we're going to call a magazine America! And so they, they put it into Google, and it's like, fuck the Jesuits, they got there first. <laughs> As always. Yeah. All right, uh, so I think uh, now we come to our... Final pit, uh, random shit. Uh, all I'd like to talk about is, is online education. But I think education is sort of a topic that's really close to our hearts, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's for, and so when we think about things like policy, uh, and we mentioned this before, it's like okay, well, should college be free? Mm. Um, these are all sort of classic democratic tropes, and I think it's also trying to reach out to a certain demographic that they want to uh, they want to share that base, right? Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that. What it means to go to community college means to like learn how to code online, right? Like, yeah. I mean, effect. Like, I mean, I, and so, and we have what three people in this room, and I think we all taught ourselves to code to some degree by being online, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it was it was an online education, <laughs> yeah. and I and I don't I don't know what to. Th- I, I think that there's a profound that education will be f- uh, the kind of skills you need um, uh, to maybe at least put uh, food on the table. Uh, may be available to you that on free in a way. I think that's an interesting revolution that we don't really talk about, and it has a profound effect on policy and how we think about education. A lot of the skills we have, are, I mean, people have done a really good job of trying to make them free and available to people. So, um, I, I, don't know, I mean, so you're a self-taught coder, right? Like you didn't, yeah, yeah, you didn't, you didn't, but you, you, you. After hey, after ten years of being a, a fiction writer working in restaurants, I looked at. Two paths: nursing and coding. And nursing would have been so much more respectable. <laughs> and you actually, I actually think about it, if I wanted to do something that we have to pay like, for it. Uh, yeah. That's what. That's what, that gets back to your point. That's yeah. like, I, I, I would have had to pay for nursing school. Yeah, I think if I wanted to do something that really impacted people's lives on a day to day basis, yeah. I think it would have been nursing. Well, then I used the coding to get into pu- to work in publishing. Yeah, that was my uh, my strategic advantage for. Uh, a skill set that I had that nobody else in publishing does. Yeah, and I've had to teach myself quite a lot in terms of coding yeah. or like other types of like more technical stuff. Like, I mean, because uh, all the stuff that I do related to like data, it's like that's always evolving. So you have to be on top of things. But I don't really like have time to go back to school. Yeah, and so like just trying to keep on top of things means I spend a lot of time trying to teach myself stuff through the internet. What's free online? Do you have a particular website that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot. I, I really swear by it. So the basics, I think, uh, Code Academy, Code Academy is, a, yeah. is really good in terms of uh, the basics in terms of computer uh, languages. Uh, I think the it's got a good feedback system too. To, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You can, yeah. So you can learn Python. I think Java, the Ruby as well. So like all those basic skills, and it's it's a very easy system to build up. Like if you're even, even if you're brand new to coding, I think it's really easy to go through. Um, the other thing that I think if you want to dig a little bit more into data science or just in general online education, I think edX is great. I've never heard of edX. So it's E-D capital X. It's, yeah. it's basically MIT's online oh, okay. platform. A lot of their courses are free. Uh, a lot of the the, uh, the way they teach either computer science or data science I think is, is well thought out, um, especially the beginning classes. Uh, you New Yorkers out there listening, I was just made aware of this, which is uh, with your library card or your New York ID card, you have full access to Linda, all the resources there through the library. Yeah. So, which is, I hear is really useful and has a lot of different courses out there. I've never availed myself of it. Yeah. I um, tend to. Yeah, so Linda's actually pretty impressive yeah. as well. Um, so I haven't, I haven't done anything on it, but uh, my wife keeps talking about doing class and, and trying to figure out 
uh, maybe we can take class together. Um, what happens now is that you have a, a group of people who've taught themselves, I think, uh, a fundamental skill to our modern society, which is coding mm. or how to use uh, more smartly use a computer. Um, but they've taught themselves in a way that it doesn't involve actually going to school. Actually, school is a distraction, right? Yeah. yeah. And so what does that really mean for liberal education? I don't know. But the thing is, you can also learn li- liberal arts types of things. Like, you certainly have history classes online. Mm-hmm. But it changes the experience, for sure. Yeah, I'm and not I, sure how great that is. Like, and I don't know how... Yeah, yeah I know, it's an interesting thing to think about either collaboration online right. or discussion online. Um, and it can go, it can go better or it can go worse. And I've certainly taken courses online where, like, you have to you have to collaborate. Um, and it's it's kind of great because you have to do it on your own time, but it's also kind of bad because you're not forced to meet with people and see them face to face. Yeah, as somebody with a philosophy degree, there's nothing worse than somebody who's studied philosophy online because you need that like professor well, pushing back at you. That's what philosophy is. is yeah, is the back and forth. You know, you're right. you're not you're not finding the right answer. You're you're learning a way to argue and approach things. Right. So I, this is where I think the divide is: is that I think it's really amazing what you can learn um, in terms of some of the harder sciences, uh, not the experimental sciences, but science theory mm-hmm. um, and computer science um, and coding. I think you can learn a lot. Even mathematics, you can learn a lot. Um, uh, Anything that feedback, you know, where that yeah. gets you like direct answers to yeah, things, you can check your work. Is, I, I, I think it's almost better online than it is because it's not embarrassing. Like in a group setting or something like yeah. that, you know, you're, you, there's a lot of anxiety. Yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah. It's much easier to learn like a, a linear algebra, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MIT has a great online course and, you, you know, you can take three years to learn it, but you'll still learn it. And, and no one's giving you shit about yeah, it. Yeah, Gilbert yeah. Strang is great. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I think... And that's interesting, but the, what happens to liberal arts, and these are, and liberal arts, I think, in some ways, is that the, being able to discuss and talk about ideas and learn uh, is fundamental to a democratic or a civic discourse. So, mm. it's, this is what, uh, so, and a reversal of what my uncle always used to insist is you go, you learn liberal arts on your own time, and you learn math, and, and you pay to learn math at a university. I think it's going to be the opposite. I now. think you're right. I think you're right. And while you're learning all this stuff, you know, then you're encouraged to open yourself up to these these job skills that are yeah. inevitably what we're going to be doing. Yeah. But to, to me, actually, uh, what I ended up studying, I studied statistics. Um, I actually think that's when we talk about skills that I think are really important. Yeah. As a way of looking at the world, not just oh, yeah, putting up. I think being able to kind of literacy. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's important. You don't need to do what I did, but like being able to understand the difference between an incident and a trend, mm-hmm. or um, an outlier and uh, common currents. That sort of discipline of way of thinking about. Okay, well, what's coming? Is this information typical or is it not typical? Um, and uh, is it plurality or is it the majority? All that that way of thinking about. Um, how information or how signals come to you and what's noise and what isn't, I think it's a way of, of thinking about our modern way that's super important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so there's almost a philosophy behind yeah, yeah. Uh, statistical reasoning that I think is really important. So everyone should take a basic stat class. You know, basic stats, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, there are a couple actually online. Uh, um, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the pod, but you're, that's what you do for a living. You're a data scientist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I started out my career as an economist. I still think of myself as an economist and a statistician. I think of you as an economist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, my first job was like either junior economist or I was, uh, I was uh, someone's research assistant, effectively. And so my dad asked me, he said, so what does that mean other than you getting to read The Economist for three hours a day? And I was like, nothing. 
nothing. That's it. You, you nailed that job. Uh, you know, at least at the University of Texas, that was considered a liberal art. <laughs> the economics. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I have a BA. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My major was in economics and statistics. It's a BA. It's yeah. not. A, it's not a science. <laughs> oh, I have an MA too. So yeah, in statistics. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah it's an art. Yeah. Even statistics is an art. Um. So um. There are a couple of introduction introduction to um, statistics classes, both in Coursera and edX, that I think are worth checking out. I can't really recommend one, but uh, and if you want to study philosophy, you're better off just finding a random stranger on the street and talking to them about like reality than you are studying it online. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, Fair well, thank you guys. I think that's it for random shit. Yeah, uh, thank you guys for listening to episode five five of Room of Requirement. Um, yeah, yeah, and you can download us on iTunes now. Don't let the bastards grind you down. Yeah, everybody. don't let the bastards keep strong. Yeah. Keep soul strong. <laughs> uh, and again, thank you very much.